Hello, my name is Peter Cosgrove. I'm a paediatric consultant in emergency medicine and critical care retrieval here at the Royal uh, for sick kids. I'm today going to talk to you about toxicology and two or three uh, pertinent cases. Toxicology is a wide field uh, that encompasses quite a range of uh, topical uh, contents such as street drugs, slang terms, heavy metal exposures and environmental disasters accidental toddler toxicology, which we'll focus on uh, here, altered mental status and the consideration of toxicology as a differential, and bio bioterrorism and envenomations. Here we're going to focus on the serious toddler toxicology uh, and the terminology sometimes used, one pill can kill, and referencing some of my own um, PTSD from one or two cases that I had seen of similar uh, variety. Uh, however, this is not just my own experience. I must say I'm very grateful for my training and experience uh, in Boston where uh, we had our active toxicology department and team uh, and saw a large number uh, for uh, the regional in the States. Um, and in particular to uh, my co-fellow, uh, Dr. Mike Tose, uh, who had already done his toxicology fellowship before joining us as a Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellow. So I must give credit where due uh, and say that uh, I don't uh, act or teach in isolation. Epidemiology, briefly, uh, this data comes from the US, which has the most robust annual uh, data uh, reporting uh, on uh, toxicology and poisonings. There are over 2.1 million exposures reported to poison centers in the States for the last year from 2020 to 2021. The vast majority, 88% were single substance exposures and there were just over 1,400 fatalities. And the top seven drugs, uh, as you may guess, were the sedatives, hypnotics, pharmaceutical and illegal opioids, uh, acetaminophen or paracetamol, miscellaneous alcohol, stimulants and street drugs, cardiovascular medications, and antidepressants. This is particularly pertinent to our area of pediatrics because the vast majority of human exposures are in young people and children. As you can see, those less than six years of age comprised 42% of all exposures. And as you can see, the next higher peaks are up into your teens and uh, your 20s. Healthcare facility exposures have been increasing steadily uh, over the last 20 years, as you can see here. Uh, the red uh, line describes uh, the actual incidence um, uh, going up per year uh, average over days. Uh, and statistical modeling has identified a slightly uh, slower rate of increase over the most recent years, so not a direct linear flit in the hope that maybe we are plateauing. But you may ask, while we're increasing exposures, uh, are they mild or moderate or severe? The data shows that we actually have increasing uh, more serious exposures and that these increases are fairly linear. Uh, less serious exposures are declining, uh, likely as a represent, uh, representative uh, controlled and safety measures taken uh, in the US. However, while that's applicable to the overall toxicology epidemiology. What about pediatric cases? Uh, in this case, uh, defined as those less than 20 years. I'll let you write down your guess which are uh, most called to poison centers uh, for children. As you can see here, 
these are the most frequently uh, involved drugs and exposures for kids less than six years of age or five or less. As you can see, the top few involve cosmetics, cleaning substances, analgesics, foreign bodies, vitamins, topical preparations, etc. The total N at the bottom you can see is close to a million. However, in addition to exposures, what about fatalities? So the top drugs resulting in pediatric deaths less than six years of age are again analgesics. Now bearing in mind, this represents the opioid epidemic uh, reflective in the US, which is not as applicable uh, uh, to the same extent in other uh, westernized countries. Uh, and the total N here is 74 for all substances and single uh, substance exposures just next to it at 44. And you can see after fumes, you have cardiovascular drugs, batteries, chemicals, alcohols, stimulants, and cold and cough preparations. For those children less than six years of age, ingestions tend to be single agent, exploratory, accidental. And although children less than six account for 42% of all exposures, they only accounted for 1.3% of all fatalities. Over the last number of years until 1985, the pediatric percentage of deaths as a fraction of the overall fatality proportion uh, has ranged anywhere from one to just over 3%. And in the last six years, you can see here at the bottom right, uh, list somewhere between 1.2 to um, uh, uh, 2% of the overall population. This is because medications are often very difficult to identify and look like sweets to little kids. It's very difficult here in this, pop, in this picture to pick out which one might actually be a drug and which one is just some regular sweets lying around or if there are older siblings around. Specific examples include amitriptyline and thiodiazine, which are bright, red, round, nice and attractive uh, tablets that any toddler might pick up. In contrast, poisonings in kids over six years of age. Uh, in the last year, there were seven fatalities in children aged six to 12 years. Three were environmental and broken up, as you see there. And then the number of fatalities jumped strongly from the 13 to 19 uh, age range with 68 in total. Two thirds of these were presumed suicides and about a quarter were due to substance misuse or abuse. So on to our first case. I will present this in a US style uh, board exam question with uh, five options. Uh, to get the most from it, I would recommend just writing down your chosen answer uh, in the brief pause before I move on uh, to reveal the answer. So, a 19-month-old boy is brought to the ED by parents who are concerned that he may have eaten extended release Verapamil 90 minutes ago. The grandfather is confident that there are no pills missing in the emergency department, the boy's normal vital signs and physical exam, but he's sleeping in the afternoon unusually. The most important, most appropriate next step in management is, as you see there, give activated charcoal, Discharge if he wakens up, a bolus of intralipid followed by an infusion, admit for monitoring, or a 10% dextrose bolus followed by one and a half maintenance. So as you may have guessed or known, the answer is to admit for cardiorespiratory monitoring. Let's unpack that a little. So newer dihydropyridine medications such as nifedipine and amlodipine are quite safe and indeed safer than the older calcium channel blockers of Vrapmil and Diltiazem. Extended release calcium channel blockers may result in symptom onset greater than 12 hours. 
Activated charcoal can be considered, but typically less than 60 minutes after ingestion, in particular in young children who will take it voluntarily. In this case, there's no specific indication for dextrose-containing IV fluid. Indeed, calcium channel blockers tend to result in an elevated blood glucose in contrast to beta blockers, which may cause hypoglycemia. Lipid emulsion or intralipids, relatively new antidotes, sometimes used for lipophilic cardiotoxins. However, it's a first-line treatment only for local anesthetic toxicity, such as a lidocaine overdose. In this scenario, the only safe treatment here really includes the observation of the patient for 24 hours and supportive care to treat potential cardiovascular effects of the calcium channel blocker. The epidemiology of calcium channel blockers. There were over 15,000 cases of intoxication and over 6,000 single exposures and over 1,000 of those in less than six-year-olds. This is the one of the medications that scare me the most when toddlers get into their grandparents' medication because Although it only accounts for 12.5 of all cardiovascular drug exposures, it accounts for 43% of the deaths. The old differentiation were the dihydropyridines and the non-DHPs, as you can see here. As you know, the dihydropyridines focus on the vasculature and the non-dihydropyridines focus on the uh, L-type calcium channels in the myocardium. This is a graph taken from an old publication, but is uh, very applicable here. Toxic dosing for an average 10 kilogram cut toddler. As you can see, nifedipine, verapamil, and diltiazem come in massive doses uh, available for uh, the adult population. However, the minimum potentially fatal dose is only 15 milligrams per, per kilo. So it really only takes one or two tablets to cause potential harm or death in toddlers. Developing further on calcium channel blockers, here's another question. Otherwise healthy 50 year old, 50 kilogram, 14 year old presented to the ED six hours post intentional ingestion of 40 sustained release diltiazem tablets. You see her three hours after ingestion, she has some nausea and dizziness. She's responsive in the ED, but her BP is 85 on 50 and she's got a junctional heart rhythm of 76 beats per minute. Her labs are as you see, as you see here, a relatively normal ionized calcium, potassium, an elevated glucose of 20, a lactate of 9, a pH of 7.2, and a low bicarb. And of course, toxicology screen, pregnancy test, and blood alcohol concentrations were negative. While you're in the emergency department, she receives charcoal via NG. Uh, she receives calcium chloride and a 500 ml normal saline bolus. She receives a IV glucagon bolus, and she started on adrenaline at 0.1. She's admitted to the ICU set about seven hours after the ingestion. She still has a BP of 80 on 50. She's a nodal bradycardia of 60 beats per minute and is intubated for florid pulmonary edema. You finally achieve hemodynamic stability with IV adrenaline and noradrenaline infusions, a glucagon infusion, isoprenaline to keep the heart rate over 100, and an IV calcium infusion. And she remains hyperglycemic even with high-dose insulin. Indeed, this case is based off a published case report um, from before. The question, as you know, calcium channel blockers are highly protein bound with a large volume of distribution. However, an overdose, which of the following are not true? Demonstrate saturable metabolism. They have an increased absorption to reduce first pass. They display first order kinetics. They're primarily metabolized by the hepatic SIP system or calcium channel blockers have active metabolites.
Which one is not true? What is not true is they display first order kinetics in overdose. Indeed, one of the other factors that uh, potentiate calcium channel blockers lethality uh, is their ability to undergo saturable metabolism in overdose. What this means is with an increased dose, the rate of calcium channel blocker clearance decreases, thus prolonging the half-life up to 12, 28 to 40 hours, even though normally it's only four to six. You can see here on the graph, the top first order kinetics, which must, most drugs undergo about 95%. And at the bottom graph is zero order kinetics. And you can see a saturated steady rate of decline where increased dose does not result in increased clearance. This patient in particular had taken so much diltiazem that her metabolism had been saturated. Indeed, to facilitate excretion, uh, she received charcoal hemoperfusion. You can see on the graph here, outlined by hours post-drug ingestion on the x-axis and on the y, uh, she has uh, her drug levels. The charcoal hemoperfusion rounds are indicated by CHP and the arrow indicating the precipitous drop in her drug levels of the diltiazem. You can see in the top right key, the MA and the M1 are the two active metabolites of um, diltiazem, uh, which are still present and recorded. Indeed, as part of the hyperglycemia and the high-dose insulin required, uh, up to 0.5 or 1 units per kilo per hour, bearing in mind this is uh, 10-fold or greater times the amount that you'll typically start in a DKA, uh, you have to watch the electrolytes, namely the potassium and the magnesium, which often drop uh, quite precipitously in response to the high-dose insulin. This is the timeline of this patient's uh, case-reported events. Without going through it in excessive detail, I'll draw your uh, attention to uh, at 16 hours, the atrial standstill that was refractory to, to pacing, that she went on ECMO shortly thereafter, Within the first 24 hours, she was documented to have absent brainstem ref uh, reflexes and was, uh, had been on ECMO, which was then terminated for life-threatening bleeding and restarted her pressors. She received further charcoal hemoperfusion, but ultimately weaned and improved and returned to baseline and was discharged from the ICU. The management of calcium channel blocker overdose it simply is divided up into initial resuscitation, which involves your gastric de decontamination and your addressing of the circulatory effects with IV fluids and atropine. Of note, there's often a clear mental state until a precipitous deterioration, and oftentimes your point of care finger stick or your D-stick to show the glucose is a very uh, accurate early warning sign. Specific interventions include IV calcium, IV glucagon, high-dose insulin, vasopressors, and lipid emulsion, if you try most other things. These two pictures are another example of what calcium channel blockers look like and how attractive they can be to a little toddler. Gastric decontamination. Options include oral gastric lavage, activated charcoal, even if they're asymptomatic and you catch them in the first one to two hours, and even whole bowel irrigation, particularly if there's sustained release notably the non-dihydropyridines, even if they're asymptomatic but have taken a massive amount. As you know, this is polyethylene glycol, and while adults can take two hours per liter, 
depending on the size of the child or teenager, you consider anything underneath. Specific therapies include atropine, which is going to be your first line go-to in standard dosing, IV calcium, and glucagon, which increases your intracellular cyclic AMP. Your atropine will be given, obviously, for symptomatic bradycardia. Your IV calcium, however, is often ineffective for calcium channel blocker overdoses. While they can block the serum concentration and the intracellular handling of calcium, the peripheral calcium gluconate has only one third of the calcium of calcium chloride. So often these children uh, need central access in order to uh, give uh, the uh, required amount of calcium chloride at the described rate. It can be used, but cautiously. There are some case reports as well that describe severe adverse events uh, and vasoconstriction at the higher doses of calcium. And the glucagon, which we'll touch on in a little bit, increases the heart rate in calcium channel blocker toxicity in animal models. Last specific therapy is your insulin or your hyperinsulin and sugar, where the hyperinsulin will give positive inotropy effects. And we'll start with a unit um, dose or an IV bolus of one unit per kilo of a short acting insulin. And be careful to watch your electrolytes. However, given the nature of the toxicity and the pharmacokinetics in overdose, not all patients actually require supplemental dextrose, even on a dose of insulin 10 times that in DKA. The second case, a two-year-old toddler attends the emergency department with his maternal grandmother. The grandmother's concerned he may have taken one of her tablets. A pill count reveals a missing extended release of metoprolol. The toddler's sleepy, vitals as you see there with a heart rate of 52, BP of 50 on 38, and 100% saturations. The sugar's 4.9. He receives two fluid boluses and atropine given without improvement in the heart rate or BP. What is your next best treatment? Is it an intralipid bolus? Higher atropine dosing? Insulin glucose bolus? Subcutaneous adrenaline? Or IV glucagon? IV glucagon. Beta blockers, in contrast to the calcium channel blockers, uh, are more prevalent. There's almost 11,000 single exposures and 2,500 less than six years of age. So over double that previously described. And while they represent 22% of all cardiovascular drug exposures, they account for 17% of the deaths. So while serious, not just as bad as the calcium channel blockers. Specifically, the lipophilic beta blockers have more cardiac toxicity. Your propranolol, acetobutyl, and libidolol have effects causing decreased contractility, bradycardia, and conduction delays leading to hypotension. Glucagon, as described in this infographic, binds to your beta receptor and causes increased conversion of ATP to cyclic AMP. This increases the intracellular pool of calcium availability for release during depolarization, augmenting the contractility. Hypoglycemia as a key feature to beta blocker overdose in contrast to the hyperglycemia seen in calcium channel blockers uh, can be critical and difficult to detect. 
it's caused by the decreased lipolysis, glycogenolysis, and gluconeogenesis by the beta blocker. It retards recovery, although less with the beta one selective, and it also masks your sign of hypoglycemia. So this highlights the importance of always getting an early finger stick to check what the sugar is. Causes toxicologically of hypoglycemia can be remembered by the acronym HOBBIES, which outline your hypoglycemics, your others, which include the picture here, which is an unripe ackee fruit, which is uh, indigenous to Jamaica uh, and commonly seen in Central and North America. Your beta blockers, your insulin, your ethanol, which has a similar effect to the beta blockers, resulting in low glycogen stores, and your salicylates as a late complication in the course. The lipophilicity of certain beta blockers results in CNS depression in the same way as the cardiac toxicity. The beta receptor blockade leads to bradycardia and hypotension and decreased cytosolic calcium disabled your G-protein cyclic AMP conversion. Although in overdose, you lose your selectivity and can also block your beta-2 and 3 receptors, leading to bronchospasm and reduced inotropy. Your lipophilicity leads to CNS depression, although with those less lipid-soluble, like etanolol, you get minimal sedation. Paper describing ECG effects looks at your PR interval, causing AV blocks, and your QRS, which leads to your ventricular dysrhythmias. And of note, a lot of these are involving the lipophilic propranolol, which is a key offender. This is caused by sodium channel blockade to highlight the cardiac myocyte action potential. You get a delayed phase zero for your calcium influx, and this is often caused by your lipophilic beta blockers, such as propranolol, your TCAs, some anti-epileptic drugs, and your typical antipsychotics. The management, however, is often quite similar to the calcium channel blockers. You have your initial resuscitation, focusing on your circulation, the IV fluids and atropine, and your gastric decontamination. Your specific interventions are quite similar. Your IV calcium, your IV glucagon, your high-dose insulin and glucose, your vasopressors, and your intralipid. Specifically for your beta blockers, your atropine will be used in the same way, in the same dosage. However, glucagon will be reached for a lot sooner. This increases your intracellular cyclic AMP as described, However, there's also a degree of tachyphylaxis, namely that it's effective early on, but there's a bit of a plateau effect after ongoing treatment. You can give it as an initial bolus, which has an effect within a few minutes and peaks at five to seven minutes. Other considerations include IV calcium in the same way to improve inotropy. Magnesium, if you have an ingestion of sodalol in particular, which prolongs your QTC. Propranolol, to give sodium bicarb if you have QRS widening, which indeed behaves more like a TCA in overdose due to the blockade of myocardial and CNS fast sodium channels. However, in toxicity, it's associated with QRS widening and a positive R prime wave in AVR due to the sodium channel blockade, which is uh, predictive of coma and seizures and dysrhythmia. Hemodialysis, however, is only really effective with hydrophilic, minimally protein-bound beta blockers such as atenolol and is less effect for the lipophilic um, propranolol. Here's an example ECG of a propranolol or flecainide ingestion. And here highlighted, you can see the first degree AV block and the sides of sodium channel blockade, namely the widened QRS complex beyond 100 milliseconds and a positive R prime in AVR over three millimeters. 
An important teaching point which uh, is easy to confuse is on the EKG, the difference between the QRS and QTC in toxicity. The QRS obviously is the sodium channel as described, which in the middle diagram, uh, the cardiac myocyte action potential you have represented by phase zero, which is the upstroke. This is affected by tricyclic antidepressants, cocaine, carbamazepine, diphenhydramine. In contrast, your QTC is your potassium gated channel, uh, which is uh, your refractory period, uh, your antipsychotics, your azithromycin, your endansetron and cisopride. The reason why it's important to keep these separate is that the treatments are very different. For your QRS complex, your sodium channel blockade will lead to ventricular dysrhythmia as highlighted in the two diagrams immediately offered, uh, opposite. It is treated with sodium bicarb to provide competitive inhibition for the sodium channels or even hypertonic saline for the same purpose. Lastly, possibly intralipid. In contrast, QTC is a potassium channel problem that'll lead to torsades de point with a QTC most notably over 500 milliseconds and for these you give magnesium to shorten the QTC. In theory, a lot of sodium bicarb can alkalinize the serum and potentially drop your potassium or magnesium due to electrical shifts, which if given for QTC will prolong your QTC. You give your sodium bicarb for a widened QRS to provide sodium competition and you don't for a prolonged QTC. So the take home points. So I aimed to encourage a proactive interest in toxicology. A healthy respect for grandparents' medications if you have toddlers. The fact that toxokinetics in overdose, such as the ch calcium channel blocker and zero order kinetics, do not equal their normal pharmacokinetics, and drugs behave very differently in massive non therapeutic overdose. Calcium channel blockers, in particular, are deadly to a toddler and demonstrate satural metabolism and overdose. For beta blockers, those who are lipophilic, like propranolol, result in CNS depression and cardiotoxicity. And indeed, propranolol has a notable sodium channel effect. Extended release preparations, even an accidental overdose of cardiovascular medication should be observed for a minimum of 24 hours. That is it. I'd like to say uh, thank you very much uh, for uh, the opportunity to talk uh, to Chris for uh, setting this up and to my old toxicology colleagues uh, that have uh, taught me almost everything uh, I know in this regard. And if anyone is interested, there's a growing interest in the role of scoping reviews uh, and their utility in medical toxicology. Thank you.